The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Come on, everybody, wake up. It's Thursday. You're watching Squawk Box with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So you've got Wall Street recovering, but the S&P and Nasdaq are still set for their worst month in a year. TPG's Jim Coulter tells CNBC's Delivering Alpha Investor Summit. There's more where that came from. Stuff happens in October, and uh, we've got government uh, activity. We've got a potential default, so strap in. Uh, strap in. It's, it's going to be an interesting time with both opportunities and risk. Chinese factory activity surprises to the downside, shrinking for the first time since February 2020, with manufacturers struggling under the weight of high raw material costs. The U.S. House passes a bill to suspend the debt ceiling until next year, but it faces opposition in the Senate as President Biden's wider agenda contends with several hurdles this week. Evergrande shares seesaw as another payment deadline comes and goes and bondholders are left waiting for their money. Natural gas prices uh, pull back around 7% in their sharpest decline since January. But it's too late for three more UK energy providers who collapse under the strain of higher wholesale prices. Very good morning to you, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. If you're not even, uh, well, I'm sure you're listening to me, but we're not going to put you in the wall just yet. Um, look, the quarter today, as I was trying to point out yesterday, you haven't lost money if you just owned it. In fact, you probably made money because, of course, you're invested dividend as well. Uh, and I'm sure you had some form of uh, buy right, buy the stock, short, sorts of calls. So you've had income coming in galore. But the net net of the quarter is that it was flat as a pancake as well. But if you have a look here, month to date, you have lost money uh, on the S&P a net 3.6. And you heard in the headlines, some experts in the market, TPG's quarter, uh, talking about more where that came from. I mean, if October isn't volatile, that would be an anomaly, wouldn't it? Now, whether we end up uh, raging to new record highs or continuing to see a bit of a sell-off, that remains to be seen. But of course, uh, and we've got Simon French coming up in a few moments' time. He's an economist. God knows nobody knows about the markets, but he's an economist. I hope he's listening, Simon, uh, who can tell us uh, some of those underlying trends on inflation, on interest rates, on tapering, on the economy that is getting everyone a little bit worried at the moment. And when people get a little bit worried, they start talking about spurious things like fear indexes, like the S&P VIX. We should have a look at the VIX as well. I have told you a thousand times in the 20 years I've been doing this that is not a fear index. It's an insurance policy, which sometimes you take, sometimes you don't. But very, very rarely does the VIX tail lead the dog, i.e. you never see this thing spike before the market falls. You see it spike as the market is falling, after the market has fallen as well. So very rarely in my 11 years as a derivatives trader, followed by 20 years 22 years as a journalist, have I ever seen the VIX going ahead of the market move? And when it does, you're very normally suspicious about who's doing what anyway. But look at this, month to date. 
37% higher. It was up to about 25 in the last couple of sessions. But the mean of the last few months, as you all know, has been around 16, 17. So now up as high as 23. But I did mention CNBC's delivering Alpha Summit. Uh, and very interesting. Some of the market's top players have been giving us, us, uh, giving us their take on the market. Stuff happens in October. And uh, we've got government uh, activity. We've got a potential default. So strap in. Uh, strap in. It's, it's going to be an interesting time with both opportunities and risk. Frost has continued. And uh, the question is only time will tell how long uh, that will go. You know, markets, as we know, they move well in advance of where the world is going. Uh, and so it's just really a question of how patient investors are. And with the time value of money being nearly zero, uh, people should be quite patient. We own businesses that we think can grow a lot. But outside of that, I really like offline businesses that are highly cash flow generative right now because I think it'll be a very protective asset. Broadly speaking in the market, I'm a little skittish. So you got one is a little sketchy. And I, I love that quote from Coulter, Karen. Stuff happens in October. It really does. Now, can you believe we've got October tomorrow and on a Friday as well? But it was your Rhodes comments that I thought was, was, was very interesting. Well, and I disagree slightly. And then, oh, how can I disagree with someone who's as, as mighty as she is? But, but she says the markets move in advance of what happens in the real economy. I don't think the markets always do. I think, as you were pointing out earlier this week, the market sometimes realises a little bit late what's going on in the real economy and doesn't like it. So it tries to throw its own hissy fit, its own wobble, uh, so that it can catch up with what actually the reality is when it refuses to look at the reality, i.e. The, the spike from 130 on the Treasuries to 155 as well. What's the time lag this time around as well? I mean, if you think back in history, the Fed has always had a signaling function. This is where we're going. We're going to let you know which direction we're heading. And then the market sort of moves ahead of the eventual nature in the economy when those uh, things come into play that the Fed has been signaling, right? So it is a, there is an advanced mechanism. This time around, the Fed's going to see, we're going to see it, we're going to touch it. We're going to make sure we've got inflation this time around. We're going to make sure the employment market is back to where it's at. You think? I've got three months of prints above 5%. And it's all very well for our good friend Carl Weinberg to tell me it's not the real kind of inflation, it's transitory. But if you are a human being out there trying to uh, feed your family, trying to heat your home, to drive your car, it feels like inflation, it tastes like right. inflation, but apparently to the economists, it's not real. But my point is, if policymakers are slow to react to the data that they're getting in front of them this time round, when do the markets react? Do they react slower as a result of that signaling function from the Fed? they've said they're going to be slow. They've said, we're going to let it run hot. They've said... What is it they said? Uh, this is the Federal Reserve. It's not about projections now. It's about economic realities. So actually inbuilt in the commentary, and the market loved all that because what it said to the market is we can turn the taps off. You can keep pouring the Kool-Aid into the party juice, kind of whatever the analogy is, you know, into the punch bowl. But that's what the market, the Fed has said that because the market loves that. So the, Fed, the market knows that the Fed's going to be slow, but you're absolutely right. We're actually going to taste that inflation. Now, if it's real, if it's real, Transitory, apparently. Right. I'll see what Frenchie says about this in a few moments' time. So I just want to take you to one area of the market, though, where you have seen a lot of action. That's just the week, the month, and the quarter, and that's the, the tech sector. Effectively, the Nasdaq pulling back for the month. Uh, you can see close to about 4.9%. But when we're talking about other quarters of the market, it's still being supported for the quarter. In fact, if you look at the Nasdaq, only fairly flat for the last three months, and deeper buried in the Nasdaq, some of those big fang stocks have actually been tracking down for the quarter, almost 4% coming off fang plus plus. 
stocks. So there has been a pain point, not just on the month of September, but across the three months for a lot of the big technology names. And it's just worth bearing that in mind, the repositioning that's been taking place on markets ahead of the Fed potentially, uh, that we want to see uh, more money positioned into other areas. That's the view from fund managers and investors at this point. I want to take you to what we've got elsewhere across uh, the uh, rest of the, the markets. Uh, Bitcoin over here, and you can see it's reflecting what we've been talking about on the channel. A lot of big stories, in particular China, the crackdown that we've seen from the Chinese about trading this product, even if it's off sure now. It's very much tightened the noose around Bitcoin over the course of the last few weeks and the, even the quarter. Other big factors too, Elon Musk, some of the tweets we've had about uh, accepting Bitcoin and then of course not accepting Bitcoin as a transactable currency to settle payment of cars. So that has been a, a little bit of a volatile element for Bitcoin. But what we've had over the course of the uh, past trading month, down 12%, still firmer though for the quarter. I think we've got that board to show you as well. For the quarter, you'll see, in fact, we've been plus 18%. So there have been a lot of highs, but also a lot of lows during the last couple of months. Well, Andreessen Horowitz, general partner Katie Horn, addressed potential crypto regulation at CBC's Delivering Alpha, saying she wanted it to be fair. Obviously, Chairman Gensler um, comes with a background in certain aspects of cryptocurrency, so that's very important. Um, And I think that the one thing when I think about regulation and the SEC, I think about is just really the need for even application. And I think zooming out, you know, there's this myth that there's the Wild West and that no agencies have any regulation that speaks to crypto. And that's not the case. You know, um, Treasury was very pioneering in 2013, Kate, um, you know, put out actually guidance on cryptocurrencies. And a lot of innovators and responsible actors and companies in the space started following that guidance, although it was difficult to implement. Well, interesting, uh, Steve, you made some some very salient points, I think, about the inflationary pressures. So, so let's just focus on classical economics for a moment. Traditionally, Adam Smith will have us go down the road of analysing the supply and demand curve and then coming up with an equilibrium price, which reflects the desire of suppliers to match the demand that we're seeing. And the arguments that we're hearing from the central bankers is clearly that demand at the moment runs in excess of supply. But uh, because you are steeped in the uh, oil industry, as it were, and understand very well the implications of too high prices for demand destruction, I would ask the question, what does the Chinese data on manufacturing tell us, if anything, about demand trends. And I think that's interesting because even as our central banks are telling us, uh, look, this could run a lot hotter than we anticipate, here we've got a print from the workshop of the world, the manufacturing hub of the planet, suggesting actually that manufacturing has turned negative. Now, is that because of the distortion of the socialist system is not properly reflecting the demand supply equilibrium? Or does it tell us actually that demand is already being destroyed by these higher prices? Discuss. And again, that's another one for uh, Simon French, I think, when we get to him in just a second. My role here is just to have a quick look at uh, where we are on the 10-year Treasury yields and ultimately the dollar we got a little bit of edging back on the uh, Treasury yield, but we're still sitting around this one spot uh, 50 level here. 
uh, we've got this peculiar or we've had this uh, peculiar phenomena that you only see every now and again in markets where people were selling bonds and they were selling equities on some of the down days earlier this month, which perhaps reflected that people didn't necessarily see the bonds as a safe haven at those yields. And I'll just point to the dollar. If there is any obvious uh, safe haven trade out there, it seems that people are putting money in the dollar rather than in any other assets, given that we've also seen a little bit of weakness in gold. Gold, uh, a seven-week low here, even as we see the dollar now uh, in broad terms at a one-year high, Steve. Okay, brilliant, Jeff. You've set us beautifully up with Simon French. Goodness knows we've never mentioned a guest more before we've got to one. Simon French, Chief Economist at Pamir. Nice to see you. So look, are you going to be one of those economists who tell me when I see inflation in chips, logistics, food, CO2, coal, oil, gasoline, cars and natural gas, that it's not real inflation? Or actually, are you going to admit that the real world's seeing a little touch of it, Simon? Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Uh, and I'm not going to uh, hide behind what have been uh surprises above what I expect in terms of inflation. But I was actually rather enjoying Jeff's uh, preamble on Adam Smith. I only wish my uh, economics lecturers at university were as engaging as he is. Makes a lot of sense. And I think I'd answer those questions directly as to why we're seeing those above inflation prints. I do think the demand side, particularly on the goods sector, particularly on the tradable goods sector, has, out of necessity from households, run somewhat ahead of where supply would have expected to be both during a recession, but also this pivot that continues ongoing between services and goods means an overconsumption. Now, do I think, am I still you know, of the view that those will be temporary factors? Because I think households are well entrenched on what they would prefer to consume in terms of goods and services. Yes, but I would acknowledge, I'll put my hand up and say that overall inflation across the piece has been higher and will probably remain higher than I'd expected this time six months ago. So, Simon, um, let me talk about another bit of inflation, because I know my, my lovely uh, colleagues want to get involved as well. But uh, when I see inflation in housing, when I see inflation in stock markets, when I see inflation in bond prices, including high yield bonds that are not high yield bonds anymore, even though they are actually junk, um, should I be worried about the inflation that's causing those asset classes by the largesse of central banks? Uh, not short term. Uh, the one thing that I always go back to, uh, you know, as a sort of sense check of where we are, uh, in the, the global economy is financial conditions. I, every analyst, every economist has their own financial conditions index. I have my own. The big success story this time around, I say this time around, compared to uh, economic events of the last 20 years of a similar magnitude, you think of the global financial crisis, you think of the euro crisis. The timing of financial conditions that took place briefly, and we have to say briefly in March 2020, was was. Uh, of the course of weeks rather than months and years. And that meant the, the corollary of that, if you like, was asset price inflation. It was keeping bond values high, yields low, so that not just creditworthy companies, but all uh, households, all companies didn't feel uh, economic cold wind as a result of an event entirely beyond their control. But it is the exit strategy from those high prices that is now uh, unnerving not just central bankers, but investors. And I think rightly so, because the last decade has shown that central banks mainly don't have an exit plan for big asset purchases. They have to do better this time around. 
Simon, it's Karen jumping in. Uh, we've had some lumpy old numbers on the oil price for the month and uh, we've been up what on WTI, for instance, a 9%, uh, almost 8% on Brent prices for the month. And we've seen that to the petrol pump uh, clear some extraordinary scenes in the last few days. What do these lumpy numbers mean in context? I think we are getting to the point where demand destruction starts to become a, a possibility. If, if the message taken by households and businesses is we can't have um, confidence over the, the medium-term path for energy. It's not solely uh, an oil price. Of course, it's a corollary of the global gas price. It's a corollary of the disruption that has taken place to, to flows. Uh, we talk a lot about goods, but of course, energy, a huge part of, of global trade flows. That has been disrupted. It's disrupted the supply side. But of course, that demand destruction comes when households, businesses don't know what the future brings in terms of their cost base and therefore pull back at the margins. And I have to say at this point, I look at the data and I think it is at the margins in terms of their investment intentions and their large consumption items. It's quite modest at the moment, but the longer this goes on, of course, it starts to become a much, much bigger problem and the spectre of uh, potentially stagflationary conditions starts to rear its head. Not our base case, but something that a, a $90, $100 uh, barrel of oil for a persistent period of time could start to generate. Simon, the thing is, I think we all understand that the price spikes are explainable and the fact that we're going to get second quarter final GDP in the UK today, which perhaps will confirm that we've had a 22% rebound in growth on an annualised basis tells us something about the mismatch between the level of demand and supply trying to catch up. My question, the furlough scheme ends today in the UK. Potentially that's, that's a million jobs at risk. Um, does this suggest that maybe as this government support washes out here in the UK and in the United States in other economies, that that demand actually is going to slip below recent trends that we've seen, that we are ultimately well past the peak of this growth rebound. Yeah, well, let's take the, those furlough numbers you quote uh, in their in their correct context. Uh, a million people still on furlough, but that is, of course, down from 9 million at the peak of the scheme back in Q2 2020. So the vast majority of people have already found jobs in a labour market that has more than a million vacancies. Now, to put that million figure in context, that's an all-time high. The issue will be whether there is friction between those people who do not have jobs to go back to when the furlough scheme ends um, and the new jobs that we know are out there, but they're perhaps not in the region, not in the sector that, um, that they would hope for that they can easily move into. I'm quite optimistic, actually. I think if you look at previous bouts of UK unemployment, there's been generally older workers who have tenure in terms of housing tenure. They can't move around the economy very much. They can't retrain readily into new sectors. What we know from the furlough population is they're largely younger people, and they're largely people who you would expect to have less friction in their, in their job function. So I don't see consumer demand uh, sort of falling below exit velocity, but it isn't going to continue at an annualised rate of north of 20%. That I can be pretty confident for both Q3 and Q4. 
Weekly jobless claims uh, today in the States. Again, we're looking for indicators that give us uh, a, a sense of how we should calibrate growth expectations from here on in. Um, should we expect a positive number or perhaps less positive, given some of the um, surprisingly weak consumer confidence data we've had this week? Yeah, it might be a week or two too early to see the impact of what now appears to be um, a slowing wave of infections in the COVID economy, the kind of consumer confidence that has been hit by infections rising. We're now seeing, I think, 47 of the 50 states seeing their COVID rates come down. I think we'll probably a couple of uh, weeks lag before we start to see that reflecting both confidence and hiring. So a little bit of a soft patch uh, in the overall uh, jobs num- uh, jobs you know, initial jobless claims numbers. But I think we, the, the bar has now been set quite high, I think, from the uh, Federal Reserve's comms to avoid a tapering uh, in, in the fourth quarter. I think the jobless numbers would need to deteriorate quite markedly from here. And I think if we look at the pandemic patterns, that seems unlikely to happen given the trajectory of the, the virus. Nice work, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. And despite your sick fancy towards Jeff's uh, lecturing abilities, uh, it was a very nice uh, chat. Thank you very much indeed for that. Simon French, Chief Economist at Pamir. Gordon Wright, coming up on the show. Big story coming out of China. Another big story. Chinese factory activity unexpectedly shrinks for the first time since the start of the pandemic. High raw material prices that uh, uh, Professor Cutmore was talking about, hitting output in the world's second largest economy. We'll uh, discuss a little bit more on this after the break. And just a reminder for more on the trading action as markets close out a volatile month, you can check out this Cork Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A lot of markets to show you as we wrap up the end of the month and the quarter. And uh, one of the big stand-up performers has been the Japanese stock market. We saw investors moving early on on hopes that there would be fiscal stimulus announced with a new incoming leader as we saw a changing of the guard in politics uh, in Japan. And that was certainly the case as we've had uh, the announcement around the uh, former foreign minister taking the top job, uh, replacing uh, the current prime minister. And so what we had effectively on markets, a big action uh, in the early part of the month on Almost 5,000 points to the upside. So the performance very, very strong for the quarter for the Japanese stock market, tailing off a little bit in recent days, but uh, still strong, as you can see. 5% 5% higher for the month and uh, stronger for the quarter. Let me take you to the Hong Kong market, almost the opposite direction. We've seen a falling right across the last couple of months as investors abide uh, a number of themes that crack down from Beijing on some of the big tech names that have been listed on the Hang Seng, but also Evergrande, the lurking issue around this debt situation with the property developer and just what that could mean for the market. So you can see Hong Kong trading off more than 5% for the quarter, for the month, uh, what we had across the course of the quarter. 
Asia, the uh, market was actually down to the tune of 15%. I want to show you the other markets we're looking at too. Shanghai, by uh, comparison, you can see very modest moves, almost a sideways action, a bit of volatility in the major index over the course of the quarter, as similar to what you saw in some of the other markets, there was volatility, but modest finish, not much for the month, only a third of a percent. In fact, not that much for the quarter, trading down by just under 1%. Jeff. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that Evergrande story in just a moment, won't we, Karen? Because uh, very interesting now, that's a second bond payment that foreign investors have been missed on. So we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about what that means. Um, let's come back to this uh, factory activity number then. Uh, so the factory activity slipped into contraction in September. That is the first time since February of 2020. The official manufacturing PMI in China coming in at 49.6 compared to the August reading of 50.1. 50 is the difference between uh, contraction and growth. Uh, But the services sector returned to expansion, bouncing back strongly from weakness in previous months. Um, Let's get to Sam on this. Sam, this has been painted as a story of higher prices and supply chain constraints. But do we have any real sense of whether there's been a slowdown in ordering as well, which is why the uh, factories are um, producing less. Good morning to you, Jeff. Yeah, there actually has. And that is one of the concerns that came out of that mixed bag of data, which you clearly painted the picture of just before. And as you alluded to, one of the big ones is is that the world's factory floor is seemingly under pressure. And it was really interesting, as you suggested, that the services sector has actually done a lot better than the manufacturing side of things in the month of September. And that just goes to show that this power squeeze that is worsening over in China at the moment because of these tight coal supplies and these higher costs is throwing a bit of a spanner in the works at the moment because we do know that these manufacturers certainly in the key industrial hubs across the country have been affected for a number of weeks now and particularly in these power intensive sectors uh, like cement aluminium and steel they've been the hardest hit and so now we've very much seen this reflected uh, in the numbers today which is why we saw that official manufacturing PMI unexpectedly contracting for the first time since the height of the pandemic. Uh, We do know that uh, new orders stayed in contraction, reflecting that there is slowing demand. But uh, factories also continue to uh, lay off workers, which is a concerning trend, uh, as I say. But this comes as these factories are already facing these high raw material costs, despite Beijing trying to rein in what they call these unreasonable price hikes. But these manufacturers are also facing these supply chain bottlenecks, this global chip crunch, and also the restrictions caused by COVID. So a lot weighing on things here. Of course, that is the official numbers, which looks at the bigger and state-owned firms. But we also got a read uh, on the smaller and private firms, uh, which uh, did stabilise at 50. So just on that line that separates expansion uh, from contract But then again, new exports did stay under pressure there as those trading partners did see flare ups in cases. Employment was also a worry there as well. So jobs certainly remaining one of the concerning trends. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.